Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. This week, we share the final part of a conversation about policing sex. Nicole Siegel talks to Anne Gray Fisher about her book, The Streets Belong to Us, Sex, Race, and Police Power from Segregation to Gentrification. Today, their focus turns to Boston and Atlanta, discussing Boston's vice district, known as the Combat Zone, and how the police used this zone to attract middle-class white people for sexual tourism while targeting, arresting, and banishing black women in the area. Here they are. In Boston, the story is one more of sexual liberalism. The question is how to bring white capital back to the city um, while also making space for this new kind of um, sexual tourist economy that they want to build. Boston tries to take its notorious vice district, the combat zone, and transform it into sort of a playground for white middle-class suburbanites, try to keep them in the city, um, and to also sort of raise, lift the, the image of the city itself so it's not quote-unquote seedy and becomes instead a site uh, for capital investment. It's really the way quite striking the way that the, the name that Bostonians have for their red light district, the combat zone. I mean, particularly <laughs> given, you know, the like the circulation of war metaphors that Stuart Schrader talks about in his wonderful book on the relationship of domestic and foreign policing. It's just, it's a really, it's quite redolent metaphorically. Absolutely. And well, and one of the ways to sort of uh, whitewash that violence is by renaming it the adult entertainment district, right? Uh, so yeah. Boston tries to have the adult entertainment district. Um, and ultimately, I also, that chapter is also really important too, because you can see how um, Black women, newly, you know, Black women um, in this new downtown area, the adult entertainment district are um, seen as the problem legal mechanisms, a variety of legal mechanisms, including banishment, are put in place to essentially pick up, arrest, and banish any Black woman on site in the newly uh, branded adult entertainment district, right? That mm -hmm. sexual commerce and sexual liberalism are really only for whites. Um, Black women are seen as violent threats to economic regrowth and redevelopment. And, you know, many of them are told to, through these banishment orders, told to, quote, go back where they came from, right, presuming that they're not already Boston residents. Um, and so Boston's efforts to redevelop, to redevelop its downtown and to make it desirable destination for middle class whites depends on the um, sustained targeting arrest and banishment of Black women. Now the question, and specifically around uh, sexual policing itself, right? Sexual policing becomes key to um, economically reviving the city. And that comes through really clearly in the sources 
uh, that was one of my favorite chapters to write. So it's really very clear in the story um, through what folks are saying. So the question then is how do you have, how do you get to sustained mass arrest and targeting of black women in Atlanta in a city that is historically celebrated as the black Mecca of the US in a city where by 1973, they have their first black mayor. Um, you know, there's finally black leadership both, you know, not only in City Hall, but among, but in the, the police department. What happens to policing in, in this now, not only historically Black, but now historically Black-led city? Um, and that is really a story of white capitalists, white businessmen, this consortium of white businessmen, Central Atlanta Progress, Inc., um, and their sustained efforts to discipline, it's a really, really sad story, their sustained efforts to discipline the new Black leadership into shifting from, shifting from a place where they thought that sexual policing was not a priority, that sexual policing could even be considered something worth legalizing. Um, how, how white businessmen discipline this black leadership into turning to an extremely intense campaign of sexual policing and mass misdemeanor arrest. Um, and what the Atlanta story shows too is how sexual policing starts as sort of the wedge issue, I guess not the, yeah, it starts as the wedge issue for white businessmen to sort of flog the black mayor into deploying police. And they're able to expand out from sexual policing to target a broader range of humans for suspected drug sales or homelessness, experiencing homelessness. They're able to start from sexual policing and then expand out to push for greater misdemeanor policing happening on the ground for a longer and longer list of human residents. How did the white elite shame the black political leadership into sexual policing? They, I, there were so many different tactics. Um, you know, well, first they really whipped up a lot of panic about um, how how they're going to lose, you know, cap, they, they threatened capital flight, they threatened to withdraw their own capital. Um, they threatened, uh, they said that, you know, they were very specific that the problem was black prostitutes on city streets. And when I say prostitutes, I'm using it's a direct quote, right, that, um, you know, if Atlanta is seen as a city that's quote unquote easy on black prostitutes, then there no one will invest in the city. And that was really a very real concern for um, the, for both Maynard Jackson and Andy Young, his, success, his black successor, because federal support for cities is steadily being slashed. 
and cities need to come up with the money themselves to to, to fund themselves. Um, a lot of capital is draining from these cities. And so they're also thinking about consume con conventions and tourism dollars. Um, and in that way, the white businessmen had a really strong boost from you know, visitors to Atlanta, white visitors to Atlanta saying that their trip was ruined because they were, you know, approached by black prostitutes and, mm -hmm. um, you know, they, so they raised they really a lot successfully of- successfully made a really big deal out of it and threatened yeah. economic loss in, yes. in ways that were, that, that were believable given the yes. context of federal, declining federal support for cities. Yes, they um, they had a lot of different devious schemes and campaigns that they run that were ultimately successful in changing um, Georgia state law and Atlanta police's own um, monetary um, priorities. Well, let me um, move you away a little bit from um, from the policy level and down to the cop on the beat, the individual story, because I, I really would like to get more at this question of police discretion. Um, and I, I just would, I, you know, you talk about mass misdemeanor arrests, that's a matter of policy. But when you talk about police discretion, one of the things that you really get at beautifully is the way police discretion allows policing to become a kind of state terrorism. And you talk about police violence, particularly sexual violence inflicted on the people that they are policing sexually. And I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about uh, the way that discretion increases violence, the function of police discretion um, in, in terms of keeping order, uh, the relationship between sexual violence on the part of police and racial order. Just, uh, I'd like to hear you talk about that if you would. Yeah, and um, I'll use a story from Boston, actually. It was one of the earliest stories I heard, and it was confirmed for me by the Black cops, the black police that I interviewed, um, who had been who had been on the BPD in the 70s. And it was just um, really astonishing. Um, so throughout the 70s, it was very common practice for individual cops when they arrested a so also right, this is happening in Boston at the height of the the wars over um, school integration and busing, right, and the, the massive wow, white resistance yes. to um, uh, to integrating Boston schools through through busing, um, and so it's an extremely um, you know uh, racially charged, extremely um, combustible time for um, for racial politics in um, in Boston in the seventies. And so, in the midst of this, it was a very common practice for police to pick up a white woman um, on prostitution charges um typically right and we will talk about this but it's a very common practice as well to extort women um by um extort them for sexual for a sexual act in exchange for non-arrest um and so after police would pick up a white woman possibly through in possibly by extorting her. So after, you know, they would say, you know, job and no arrests sort of situation, um, then they would drop her off in a secluded and say, in a secluded part of the city. 
Black women, on the other hand, after they were picked up by cops, would be dropped in the middle of the most virulent site of white uh, racism, usually South Boston, and then the cops would honk their horns to get everyone's attention or set, or set off the sirens to get everyone's attention and drive away. And then this Black woman would be left in the middle of sort of the racist epicenter of the city having just been dropped off by cops, right? It's extremely dangerous um, and, and, and violent. Also, and also after basically having been assaulted. Sexually assaulted. Essentially yes. raped by the cops, right? Yes. That's what you're talking about. Yes. Um, and the Black police I talked to confirmed that that was standard practice. Um, the epilogue goes much deeper into the ways in which sexual sexual policing um, enables, sometimes mandates, um, incentivizes sexual violence. Sexual police sexual violence is the second most prevalent um, uh, police crime, um, although that's probably an undercounting in many states. The law allows for sexual contact by police in order to quote unquote gain evidence, right? This is absolutely experienced as sexual assault for women if, a, if a, an undercover cop um, engages in sexual intercourse with a woman and then shows his badge and says she's under arrest. That is absolutely experienced as sexual assault for these women. Um, and, uh, and many state laws um, don't just condone, but allow and encourage this kind of um, sexual violence in order to enforce prostitution laws. So I go, I, I talk a lot about that in the epilogue, um, but I think it's important to, to understand that sexual policing itself is an engine of police sexual violence and is a legal site of police violence. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, but, uh, mm -hmm. Go ahead. You know, and uh, and the story in Boston shows us, right, how this police sexual violence is is always doing multiple things at once, right? In addition to terrorizing the woman, um, it's also a way to discipline her based on her um, uh, on her social location, right? Um, many cases, women are so vulnerable to this police sexual violence simply because the police know that women have no other recourse. Yeah, that's right. You come to a very clear prescription. You have really concrete ideas about what we should do, given the situation you describe. Can you talk about those? So to answer your question, I'll just talk really briefly about um, the final chapter in the book, which looks at competing feminist activisms in the era of broken windows policing. I really, I, I both talk about the, this, I, I map a historical genealogy of what we would call today carceral feminism. So I talk at length about uh, this group of white feminists who, in predominantly white feminists who in the 1980s and 1990s believed that um, were, were alarmed by the, the violence that uh, women are so vulnerable to um, structurally uh, experience in, uh, in the US. 
And they believe that the police were the answer to the problem, right? Of violence against women. And they believe that uh, they should, that they made demands on police to protect women. Um, of course, you know, a, a century of history would showcase the ways in which police were not protective of women and were not doing protective work. The other genealogy I track in that chapter is of um, usually anti-capitalist or socialist multiracial feminists who identify the state as a powerful generator of violence against women, not only because of the act of state violence of, of policing and incarceration, but also the ways that the state makes women vulnerable to other kinds of violence. So um, I'm thinking in particular of um, the serial murders of mostly black women in Boston that kind of launches uh, one of the main campaigns for the Combahee River Collective, this um, really important black feminist organization in Boston in the 70s. Um, and many feminists, other, and as well as the serial murders of black women in LA. That's another key site that I look at feminist mobilizations. And what these feminists are saying, as opposed to the carceral feminists that I talk about um, in these organizations, in this anti-capitalist multiracial organization, she's affiliated with Wages for Housework, um, but she's working on sex work, sex laws. One of these activists, and I just want to offer a content warning, it's very violent, but she makes the argument that men hunt down hookers because police hunt down hookers, right? And so her argument was that the state is not only violent, the state is, cops are not only directing their violence at women, but in doing so, they are sending a message that sexually profiled women who are targeted by police are, um, less valued are disposable. And as a result, they become um, prime targets for other kinds of non-state violence. Um, and so it's that genealogy that I really, um, I see coming through in so much of our abolitionist feminism today. Um, and it's that genealogy that I think really sustains a broader vision of what safety actually means and looks like in practice and the ways in which the diagnosis, right? The ways in which policing itself does not protect, but in fact generates and compounds harm and violence in women's lives and in all of our lives, in everyone's yes. lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do though, I do wanna, I wanna point you to, back to your own epilogue and to the really sharp prescriptions you make about um, ending discretionary morals laws and denying police the discretionary power to enforce public morals. You, you have, your abolitionism is very specific. It's pointed at particular parts of policing. And I feel like it's very powerful. It's informed by all of this deep history that you've just been talking about. And I'd, I'd love to just hear you talk a little bit more about how you think the situation you're talking about could be remedied. When I started this book, my goodness, 15 years ago, I um, I was familiar with and very supportive of the movement to decriminalize prostitution. 
so-called prostitution, right? And to um, repeal all prostitution related laws. Um, that argument has been um, developed since the 1970s by the prostitutes, what was called at the time the prostitutes rights movement. So I'm, you know, I was very, um, that's where I was coming from. And yet what I saw as I was thinking about, you know, a century of sexual policing, and, and this was also from um, a, sex, a sex worker herself who said, you know, the police have so many laws they can use on you. It's just sickening to me. Um, so I really started to think that repealing prostitution laws specifically would not be enough because we see throughout uh, the book that police will then turn to, police and their allies will turn to loitering laws or um, disorderly conduct, or, you know, they'll use all of these really vague laws that totally activate and enable police discretion. They'll just shift over to those to target vulnerable or sexually profiled people. And so first, right, um, at the barest minimum, we need to absolutely um, abolish all morals laws. And uh, more than that, uh, uh, deny police their authority over our bodies, right? Just full stop, right? Um, deny police their authority to determine or enforce any kind of social normativity, any kind of moral order. That should not be like, that should just not be um, uh, within the realm of police authority, full stop. Do you uh, think that policing could exist without the discretion that lies at its core? Hmm. I, that's such a good question. I've never been asked that. Um, <laughs> I do know there are, you know, there are a bunch of like, criminologists in the 70s who were trying to untangle the knot of police discretion, you know, because there's also, you know, um, police brass and like federal, you know, uh, federal agencies for criminology and police studies, they all want to control what police do, right? Like police, I mean, I do understand, like there's a chain of command and, um, and uh, there's a lot of criminologists in the 70s who are like, you know, how do we uh, train out the discretion. And um, I just don't think it's possible. And I think that that is at the heart of, um, that's sort of one of the engines of policing itself, right, is to empower individuals to make judgment calls, right, about that are totally steeped in their own um, ideological worldviews. Um, and that's also how we get um, that that's also how we get the understanding of the legitimacy of police and trying to eliminate that through what would basically be administrative procedural specifications would go in the direction that people like Naomi Murakawa and Elizabeth Hinton have warned us against, you know, strengthening the administrative procedures of law enforcement does not lead to less or better or more just law enforcement. It it leads to widening the net. Absolutely. I mean, if we see anything through the history of prostitution policing, sexual policing, um, it's that it's unreformable, right? Any any attempt to reform ultimately expands police power. 
in this in the same portion of the book where you're really thinking about what needs to be abolished you point out that sexual policing because it's a site of legal control and a factory for producing ideas about normative gender behavior really means that the criminalization of prostitution criminalizes all people who identify as women and yes. you really do a gorgeous job of pointing out how um, sexual policing, which is this highly racist policing at this point in U.S. history, is a site for the most restrictive and destructive kinds of definitions of gender. You, you're doing this really important work of showing how racism immiserates the lives of people who understand themselves as women. I'm sure we could understand, we, I'm sure we could expand that to the lives of people who understand themselves as men as well. But in this case, you really are showing how this racist policing should matter to all women, all people who understand themselves as women. Um, I, I, I would like to hear you talk that through a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I will say, you know, I think that the, the violence of sexual policing and the ways that it completely um, uh, makes cities themselves less equal and uh, um, harder for all folks to live in, like that's, and, and the fact that, and the ways that it empowers police should be concerned to, to, to everyone. Um, but sexual policing itself is so um, invested in ideological categories of gender and of womanhood specifically, it was really important for me, for folks to understand that when it comes to the to sex laws, when it comes to sexual policing, police could arrest any woman on any city street, but they don't, right? And so what are the historically specific and the ideological contexts in which different people get targeted over time, different women get targeted over time? The, the classic example I offer to my students is the uh, the group of white women on a, you know, out at maybe a bachelorette party or just a group of women going out at night to go to bars or to go clubbing. You know, a hundred years ago, they would have absolutely been targeted for arrest, but now they are not, right? They don't feel the, the constraints of sexual policing, but that does not mean that they are not there. And it doesn't mean that they aren't that those white women are not affected by sexual policing. They're affected in the ways that it allows them to express and understand their subject positions as women. Absolutely. Right. So whether we, women are unfree or only provisionally free, right? Um, whether the um, the very punishing boundaries of lawful womanhood are something that uh I experience every day or not at all, right? Sexual policing will still structure the limits of my social possibilities, my political possibilities, and even my economic possibilities. It really, it, it, it limits and constrains, um, uh, it limits and constrains the possibilities for all of us to flourish, right? In, um, in cities that are, um, in cities that have, you know, bloated armies of police um, mm -hmm. to serve and protect property wealth that was uh, that was um, 
uh, erased of any non-normative person through sexual policing laws. I think in this moment when white privilege is clearly so buttressed by the police power and when the feelings around entitlement and whiteness are really created by the spectacle of anti-Black policing and the, the policing of Black and Brown people, it's incredibly important for people to understand the harm that anti-Black policing does to white women so that the broadest possible coalitions and solidarity can stand against them. I could not have said it better. I'm gonna end the interview by just admonishing every listener to go out and read the book again because it's really, really will be worth the trouble. This has been KiteLine. Please reach out if you have a news item we should cover, if you want to volunteer, or just to tell your story. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.